for our sermon text, I invite you to turn once again with me to Luke, Luke chapter 2, and this morning we'll be reading verses 25 through 38, the section we skipped over last week. This is found on the church Bible on page 1180. Luke chapter 2, hear the word of our God. Let's back up to verse 22. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all the peoples to bring a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. And coming in that instance, instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would bless this, your word. Bless your servant as he preaches. Bless we who listen, that we might love you more fully, know you more dearly, and serve you more faithfully as we await the return of your Son, 
for we ask it in his name. Amen. Last week we uh, jumped around a little with some of these verses looking at Jesus under the law and how even before he was taking action himself, God had arranged it for his parents to be keeping the whole law on his behalf as an infant. Now we come, as, as they bring him into the temple to keep this law, we come to see these two uh, wonderful saints. They're in that strange position of uh, bridging the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. They are the last of the Old Testament believers uh, bridging that gap into the, the coming of Christ. And they are, as some have said, they are the waiting church. And they are waiting, aren't they? Day and night waiting for Christ to come. Not some vague idea off in the distance. Um, So this morning, as we look at Anna and Simeon, we're presented with more than a, a cute image of old people who like babies. We're presented with a, a marvelous salvation that was even understood then before the full cross and resurrection had taken place. Here we see salvation through their lens, and it should probably challenge how we view salvation and how we live today with more knowledge. These are at the very end of what Hebrews 11 is talking about. Hebrews 11, presenting those who walked by faith and lived by faith. And it says at the end, they did not receive the promise. That is, they did not see the fulfillment of all of it in the flesh. Well, Simeon and Anna come right at the end of that. They see him in the flesh. They don't see him crucified. They're bridging that gap. And so they set an example of faith for us that should challenge us. So here in our text, uh, among many things, we, we see some wonderful things about who God is in this text that overlap with what we saw in chapter one of Luke. But here we see especially uh, these saints waiting for salvation, waiting for salvation. And it's not some vague idea that, Uh, maybe someday God will do something. They have a clear mindset. That's why in verse 38, they and those who are like them are those who are waiting for redemption. They're looking for an act to be done on their part. Not uh, someone who will just tell them, how can we be saved? What do we have to do? but who will actually come and do the thing on their behalf. They're waiting for redemption, or it could be uh, thought of here as ransom, redeeming, ransoming, paying something to purchase back a life that had been lost. Purchased back, Peter tells us not, ransomed with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb as without spot or blemish. Paul in Romans 6 tells us 
that there's a result to this redemption, that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We've been purchased unto everlasting life and unto righteousness. We are no longer slaves of sin, but we are now slaves of righteousness, servants purchased for this other thing. This redemption is such a beautiful thought. And here, hear the beauty of it. As Simeon says, I'm holding your salvation in my arms. Simeon has this clear understanding that salvation is not, is not something I obtain. It's something I see. And, and he says, it's something I see, which now I, I embrace in my arms. It's a person. Salvation for Simeon is Jesus Christ. What an astonishing thing that he would be able to look at this infant whom if he dropped would be hurt and say, here is the world's salvation. To have the eyes of faith to be waiting, waiting for something which to the world's eyes is weak and helpless and and insignificant. But to see beyond, beyond this babe, to see this babe, yes, he's even able to anticipate what this salvation will cost. In fact, we've had Zechariah and Mary's songs, and they were beautiful songs of salvation. In Simeon, we find the first hint at the cost of this glorious salvation. To Mary, in particular, her own soul will be pierced. Surely Simeon is anticipating that the cost is going to be watching your son suffer. What could cause a greater piercing of of any parent's soul than to watch their child die. And surely that is what Simeon is anticipating. How how much did he see? We, we, We can't be sure. But he saw enough from the Old Testament prophecies to know that the servant of the Lord, who would be the means of salvation of our God, must, Die to pay the ransom for our redemption. Somehow he saw that. And no doubt because he was waiting for salvation so intently. And so is Anna. She's waiting intently. She didn't use her widowhood moping about. There weren't a lot of jobs for a widow in those days. And so there were a lot of widows who would seek assistance from others and be lazy. 
And there were also a lot of widows who were starving because they couldn't find assistance from others. One of the things the Jews did really phenomenally, you can find this even in secular history of the day, they did welfare for their widows particularly well. They didn't do it as well as they should have, no doubt. But they, they probably still shame many in our churches today for how well they cared for those in need in Israel. There were many who were suffering, no doubt. But here we have a woman who was probably receiving a daily food source from the temple. Uh, she doesn't appear to have family caring for her. That was the way it was supposed to go, right? Your, your children would provide for you first. Or if you didn't have children, your siblings might provide for you. But if you didn't have either, then the temple would, would provide for you. Well, how easy to be lazy, to get that, and then to go off, to get the money from the temple, and then go spend it for your own uh, whatever your pleasures might be. But here is a woman who took that and said, I am being provided for out of the offerings of God's people from the house of the Lord, and now my job is to fast and pray and seek the Lord. What a marvelous thought for this woman. She's made it her career to be at the temple, worshiping. Well, these two, they're waiting for salvation. They're anticipating its coming. And Simeon, of course, has this special revelation. Did, did, did Anna as well? It's possible She's a prophetess, so it's possible that she's received some kind of special revelation about the coming of Christ in her life as well. We don't know that. Maybe, maybe not. But Simeon knows that the Christ is coming before he dies. And they're waiting. They're anticipating. How did they wait? Well, I think two things are very clear from these verses. That they wait with devotion. They don't wait half-heartedly. Everything I've just said about Anna surely shows that she wasn't doing it half-heartedly. She was waiting with devotion. She fasted night and day. Well, obviously she didn't do that for 80 years or she would be dead. Her, her fasting and praying then is a way of saying that it was regular for her to spend serious time fasting. And she was constantly praying every day and every night. What was she doing in fasting? And it wouldn't be a bad thing at some point for us to think about fasting today and what is and isn't biblical fasting. But in the Old Testament especially, you see fasting over your own sins. You don't just fast for the sake of fasting. You, you fast out of grief over your own sin. You fast out of grief for the people of God as a whole and their need of repentance. The church, part of which you are. You, or you might fast for, uh, as you pray for someone who doesn't know God and honor him, that they would repent. Or you might fast to remind yourself 
your need and utter dependence on God. Or you might fast for all of those reasons at once. So, so here's this woman who is reminding herself constantly of her dependence upon God. Reminding herself and grieving over her sin and grieving over the nation and grieving for those who wait for redemption in Israel. She is not doing this half-heartedly. In other words, we could say she's making use of God's means of grace, fasting and prayer. And she's at the temple, which means she's also hearing preaching. That's what the Levites did at the temple. But we don't think of there being preaching in the Old Testament. We think of sacrifices and then these random occasional prophets. But the prophets preached regularly, even when they weren't bringing new revelation. And the Levites taught in the temple every day. And so she's a woman who's not only fasting and praying, she's a a, a woman of faith who is hearing the word read and preached. And she's there at the temple where the sacraments are, watching the sacrifices. In other words, to uh, to, to use language we use in uh, the church, in confessional churches, she's making use of the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace. Word, sacraments, prayer, and one we don't always list, fasting on, uh, on regular occasions in her life. Simeon also is a very devoted man, and he also seems quite familiar with the means of grace. He's at the temple frequently as well. This is what waiting looks like, devotedly making use of those things God has given us. He's given us his word. He's given you the word in English, absurd numbers of translations in English, more than you need, good ones, some bad ones too, but a lot of good ones. You probably have several sitting at home, and you have many of them on your phones. Are we making use? Are we waiting? Well, we might be tempted to say we don't need to wait because Christ came, and we've seen him crucified and resurrected. We don't need to wait anymore, but we are. We're waiting for his return. We have redemption, but we're waiting for that final consummation when our bodies experience the fullness of redemption, even as our souls already have. When these bodies, which still decay and are still full of pain and suffering, are resurrected, full, renewed, glorified, resurrected bodies with these eyes we will see God so we're waiting for his return as well are we doing so by being in the word by being there not at the temple but at the new testament temple the body of Christ the church are we making use of the sacraments are we making use of prayer and when was the last time you fasted I don't want an answer to that. That's between you and God. You don't advertise it. You wash your face. You don't look mopey when you're fasting. Christ is clear about that. But just 
consider it as you wait for Christ? Is it a, a devoted waiting or is it half-hearted? Is it, oh yeah, he'll be back someday. Now on with my life. I, I think that's a very tempting way to live. But we're called to be devoted and waiting and using these means. Well, here are these people waiting for salvation. Are we waiting for his return? And then secondly, I think it's important for us to note the salvation in this passage. It's the salvation for a divided world. See how, see how Simeon brings the whole world into this. Now, in, in the Old Testament, there was this division in front of the people. There were those who were Jews of Abraham's family, and then there was everyone else. And if you were from the world, the Gentiles, you could, you could still be saved, but you were saved as you came in and joined this nation. And so it was very easy for this mentality to be the proud nation. You have to still come in to be a part of us. And even then, the Levitical Code, even if, even if you were a Gentile who converted, maybe you were a man, you were circumcised, you still couldn't come all the way in. You had to still worship in the outer courts. So there was this feeling of real division. It's easy to understand how the thought was salvation would just be for the Jews when the Messiah came. And yet, that isn't what we find. Simeon, Simeon displays three things about this salvation regarding this division. First, it's a salvation for all people. Verse 31, Simeon says that God had prepared this salvation before the face of all peoples, not just Abraham's line. All peoples. And that he prepared it not tauntingly before all peoples. It's not that, well, here's salvation for the Jews and you world, you know, watch and be jealous. But he goes on in verse 32 to make clear that which is prepared is a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. It's a light to those walking in darkness. Because of sin, the whole world is covered in darkness. Humanity is bumbling about in the dark of our sinful nature. Our hearts are incredibly wicked and dark. Jeremiah says, who can know them? But this salvation from God is come to shine into the darkness. And not like this little flickering candle. But remember how it's presented by the prophets and indeed is presented by Luke also as the redeeming sunrise from on high. The dawn, the blazing light, which, which burns away the fog and the mist and drives away the darkness. This light to bring revelation, revelation of salvation. 
God revealing himself and his mercy and grace to the nations, but also the glory of his people Israel. And what does it mean there by glory? Is it a better salvation? No, the point is that all these years, Israel has had these prophecies that declared the coming of Christ and how foolish those promises looked when you're being dragged away to Babylon. How foolish they look when Solomon's temple's destroyed, you build a new temple and it's so pathetic that the old men who saw Solomon's weep. How shameful when the Greeks and the Romans take over and set up puppet kings. And in fact, by this point, when Christ was on earth, had set up puppet high priests. They weren't even of the tribe of Aaron anymore. What shame to say, I'm a Bible-believing Jew. But here he comes. Glory to replace the shame. Indeed, even think we read Isaiah 49 this morning, part of it. And there's a lot in there that Simeon is almost certainly reflecting upon. That he himself, because he represents Israel, is their glory. Christ is referred to in Isaiah 49, the servant as Israel. He is the Israel who doesn't fail. That's why in Matthew 2, we're told, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Matthew's gospel goes to great lengths to show us Christ as the Israel that Israel should have been. He too is brought into the wilderness. And he doesn't grumble or complain or sin, but trusts in his God. And there are many other points like that you can draw, especially as you read Matthew's gospel. And so when we think of Christ as the glory of Israel, it's because he was the Israel They had never been. And in him they could be the Israel they had never been. And so can we remember Galatians 3 and other passages where Paul reflects that the true Israel of God is the Israel by faith in Christ who has fulfilled it all. And so he is the glory because in him they can be the nation they had been called to be, the people they had been called to be, even as God brings us, we, most of us anyway, Gentiles, into his kingdom. So it's a salvation for all peoples, but it's a salvation for all peoples that is just one salvation. Did you note that? Simeon doesn't talk about two salvations and two peoples. He talks about one salvation for both peoples. 
that there's a, a line of theology that's very popular this past hundred years that emphasizes there's the Gentile church. And then there's going to be this other salvation for the Jewish people as a nation. And the two things aren't the same. But that's not what we find Simeon reflecting on here. God has prepared salvation, singular. This person, this babe, Jesus Christ, who will be the light both to the Gentiles and the light of glory of Israel. And that's what we find as we reflect on Jesus and Peter and Paul. Neither of them set out to make two different ways of salvation put before us. Peter and Paul especially emphasize one salvation. Look at Paul. He goes to each city. He preaches first to the Jews. What does he preach? Christ and him crucified. Then he goes to the Gentiles and he preaches to them What? Christ and Him crucified. And of those who believe, both of the Jew and of the Gentile, one church, one body, one bread, and one fellowship. Paul especially does not show an interest in two ways of salvation and two different groups of people of God but of calling the Jews of his own day into the church. He longs for the redemption and, and the, the return of the Jews as a, as a people. And he anticipates in Romans that there will be a great revival among the Jews. But he never speaks of that as being separate from the Jews being part of the one vine, Jesus Christ. So it's one Salvation we find here anticipated and anticipating the whole New Testament view. And then third about salvation, Simeon does show us, though, that salvation divides. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Because I've just been saying there's only one salvation that brings the Jews and the Gentiles together. And yet notice, notice verse 34 and 35. He declares, behold, this child is destined both for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that will be celebrated. No, will be spoken against that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. No longer is the division about race, but it is a division over faith. Faith. Christ's offer of redemption will divide. Christ says this himself, doesn't he? It will divide fathers and sons, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters. The gospel of Jesus Christ will bring persecution to those who receive it. See the Beatitudes. And that's because some people are divided to persecute, right? There's a division here between those who love 
the gospel of Christ and those who love their darkness more. John three eighteen through 20, those who reject and remain in the darkness are condemned, but those who believe are raised. And the word used here by Simeon for those who will be raised is used elsewhere, resurrection. There will be this division based on faith. There's one way to the Father. He is the life that brings light to all types of men, women, children. But those who come to the foot of the cross united should expect their own crosses for Jesus' sake. Simeon is waiting for this salvation for a divided world. And Anna is going to show how Simeon and Anna feel they should respond to this salvation for a divided world. They speak of it to anyone willing to hear. Anna goes out and tells everyone who is willing to hear, speaking to those who looked for the redemption of Israel. And so the question is, do we? Do we take this one message of good news of salvation to Jew and Gentile alike? I think sometimes it can be easy to uh, just pick one kind of segment of people for our evangelism. For some people, that's the maybe that is people like uh, religious Jews who are moral people. So there's a good starting point. We, we can work with them on that, or maybe they're intellectual, and we feel intellectual, or maybe. And so we, we think we can have this big conversation. And we neglect those who are poor and needy and seemingly foolish or who don't enjoy the intellectual conversation or who are immoral. Why would we get close to them? Maybe that would make me a little dirty. We, we don't express things like that. But some of us, we do pick maybe the, the moral people, the equivalent of the Jew, to witness to. Or on the other hand, some of us go the other direction, right? You look around our society and someone who's a religious Jew looks really moral. Oh, they don't have as big of a need as this other person does who's immoral. And so we put all of our focus this other direction. Now, you might be called by God to focus on one of those two sides of things in your evangelism. He might gift you. Some of you are gifted with uh, an intellectual capability. Some of you are gifted with a, a common man mentality. Some of you have friendships with really wicked people and they respect you and you have this ability to bring the gospel to them. But as a church, as a people of God, we need to not neglect either side of this because the New Testament presents one salvation for man and woman for rich and poor, for Jew and Gentile, are we, like Anna, speaking to all who will hear. And then the third and final thing in relation to salvation that we find in this passage, I believe, is departure in peace. 
Here's the intimately personal part for Simeon. He begins with that famous line, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. The word with which we've already been informed that Simeon will not die till he has seen the Messiah. We don't actually know how old Simeon is. I bet most of us just think, here's an old guy. And then we read him say, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. And the next morning, someone found Simeon peacefully dead in his bed. But we don't know that. We have no idea how old he was other than just guessing because God mentions he won't die before he sees the Christ. We don't know how long he lived after holding Christ in his arms. And that's, I think, very significant because you don't know when you're going to die. And the message of Simeon is not when you're old, you can depart in peace. The message of Simeon is can you now depart in peace? What would that take? to depart in peace. I really love how Philip Ryken speaks of this. He writes, anyone who has seen Jesus with the eyes of faith is prepared to die. And anyone who has not seen him, whether young or old, is not ready to die at all. When we see Jesus and his salvation, we are ready to be dismissed from this life in peace and enter the life to come. Have you seen Jesus by faith? Have you seen him crucified for your sins? Have you seen him raised for your salvation? It is then and only then that anyone is prepared to die. That's the message of Simeon. That's the challenge of Simeon for you. If you're not a believer, Riken's right. You are not prepared to die. If you're not a believer, you can be a hundred years old and have enjoyed your life quite thoroughly and have watched your great, great whatevers grow up and lived a full life that you're still not prepared to die and depart in peace. But if you're 10 years old and you have beheld salvation in Jesus Christ, you are prepared to die in peace. That doesn't mean you need to pursue it or desire it tomorrow, but you should desire since none of us know when death will come. And I think here's the problem. Riken is absolutely right. If you have, by faith, seen Christ crucified, risen, and ascended, your Savior and your King, you are prepared to die. But sadly, that's not how we think far too often, even as believers, because we take all these other factors into account. We consider what we need to have accomplished before we die. We make our bucket list. 
We make our list not just of what we need to have experienced, but accomplished, but also experienced. Or, or we might consider all the pain that's tied to dying. Because we're not promised painless deaths. And we might consider that and not feel at peace and want to avoid it. Or we might pull the worldly thing and pretend like I never actually have to die at all. The older you get, probably the less you have that feeling. Although, although I, I knew a man whose fiance and her son who needed his money and he had promised his money to them as they cared for him for several years of cancer treatments and as his own brother had not spoken to him in 30 years. But he was so in denial about death, he refused to make a will. An old, older man. And all the money went to the brother who didn't even seem sad at the funeral. So it's not just young people who are in denial about the reality of death. But we all will die. Simeon knew his death was coming whenever it was. And Simeon takes no account for the pain when asking himself how comfortable his death will be. God had not promised Simeon, once you see the Christ, you will die peacefully in your sleep. He just said you'll die. And Simeon says, how I die and how it feels is irrelevant. Simeon, Simeon has a bucket list and it only has one item on it. To see salvation. To possess consolation from sin in Christ. To bask in the glory of the light of salvation, which is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the only thing on Simeon's bucket list. And the only thing necessary to die well. And at peace. So the challenge of Simeon for us is, are we believers that focused? As we wait for Christ and and serve him in many ways and take enjoyment out of the many gifts he's given us in this life. Nonetheless, are we this confident? That we will die, and when we die, there is one necessary thing that we have beheld by faith and held salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. That he would work within us to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that we might die in peace. Let's pray.